Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host. And today we're going to have a conversation with Carter Malloy. He is the founder and and still is sort of, I would guess, CEO of AcreTrader. And I've actually been looking forward to this because I get, uh, uh, I think you're on my Facebook page and and or my Facebook feed and so on and so forth. And I, I'll see, hey, I'm interested in that ground, but then I already have three farms in three different states. So uh, maybe maybe I've tapped out on farmland, but I'm not sure. But uh, how are things going, Carter? Very well. Thanks for having me here, Paul. Excited to visit with you today. And you guys are, where are you guys based again? I, I think I'm pretty sure I know, but for the listeners out there, where are you based at? We're out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. So that's, is that where Walmart is at or near where they're at? That is exactly right. We're here near the university and uh, some large employers like Walmart and J.B. Hunt and, and Tyson. Okay. Okay. Um, so we always like to start off with your background. So uh, where did you grow up, college and and everything that you did before you started AcreTrader? Let's, let's get a recap on that. I grew up here in Arkansas, where, where I live today. So I was born in a farming family uh, near or in Stuttgart, Arkansas. So the, we self-proclaimed duck hunting capital of the world and uh, a <laughs> wonderful place here in the Delta. And I grew up between Stuttgart and Little Rock, the, the quote-unquote big city, going back and forth. Uh, came here to Fayetteville, where I live today in 1999 uh, for, for school. So I was obsessed with science in my younger days, still, still am, but uh, so did my undergrad here in, in physics and then spent about a dozen years in investing. Uh, that, that investing was in public markets. Uh, so doing research on technology companies, property companies, retail, industrial businesses, things like that, and, and investing as a professional in, in public markets. And over that course of a dozen years of, of investing, in the background, I was buying and selling land initially some of my dad and some of my own uh but really uh, just always had an obsession with being out on on farm ground and love the the delta part of, of our state and so this passion of mine actually was producing returns and it was something that i just really really was enjoying doing as you know, one more reason to talk to my dad every day and uh, we were visiting along the way and realized that i had other people i knew that wanted to invest in farmland. And likewise, we knew farmers that wanted access to more land to grow their business. And so my, my dad and I really came up with this idea of building a business to help farmers grow and help investors gain access to, to farmland. So that was uh, five or six years ago. And, and fast forward to today, we're a company of uh, around 80 or so people and growing very quickly, again, with that same mission of, of helping folks invest in farmland and helping farmers grow their business. Well, I, I'm just curious before we'll, we'll certainly dig into acre traders. So, so you were a physics major in college. Is that what you were saying? Correct. Okay. I, I remember I went to university of Washington a few years before you did, and I had a physics class and I still remember this class. I enjoyed the class. The professor was pretty good, but I remember there was this midterm and it still is a burr under my saddle. Um, this midterm and he graded on the curve. And for some reason, I decided to study extra hard for this midterm. Don't ask me why, because that wasn't typically what I did in college, but I did. And I think the potential score was 200 points, and I had a, like 198 points. And the next highest score was like 150. So the professor threw the whole thing out, 
So I didn't even get credit for the fact that I studied for this midterm. <laughs> yeah, so I, well, it, it, inversely, uh, I got a really bad grade in accounting. I was a business major for a while and decided I hated accounting so much I wasn't going to do it. And here, here I am. <laughs> well, I won't. I won't hold that against you. So, so, so you, you're based in Arkansas. You have about 80 employees. So for the listeners out there, let's go through what what is Acre Trader and what does it do as far as investing in farmland? Because it is a little different than than a lot of other um, you know farmland investment opportunities out there right now. It, it is for for a number of reasons. P perhaps most importantly, uh, reason number one is that we are farmer first as a business. So we we are not a a fund. Uh, we are not out chasing landowners and, and deals that way. Instead, we have a very unique approach. We have a, a regulated broker dealer as part of our business, and that allows us to work more closely with farmers, to, to put it simple. So our approach to the market is build relationships with farmers across the United States, as, as well as in Australia. And those farmers then, uh, they are the ones that are actually bringing uh, land purchase, poten potential land purchase transactions to our platform. For, for some context, there's 50, if not 100 billion with a B dollars of farmland that trades hands in the United States every single year. So, so it's already a very, very large market. So we work with these farmers that want to grow their business. And in trade, they're able to uh, potentially participate in the economic upside they're able to invest alongside the investors. Uh, and, and so it's a very unique program called an equity financing program for farmers. So farmers can grow their operation, get access to more land without taking on debt. For the investors, uh, it is also somewhat unique in that they can come onto our platform at, at acretrader.com. And very simply, they come on and a few clicks, they can come invest in part of a parcel, part of a piece of farmland, right? So rather than going out and buying a multi-million dollar track and, and managing farmland, which is a non-starter for most people you and I have ever met. In, instead, the investor can come on our website and buy a fraction of a, of a parcel. So uh, a, a farm from, you know, pick your state will be on the website at any given time. That farm is in a unique LLC and the investors purchase part of that LLC that, that owns title to the farm then the investor gets to participate in, you know, whether it's rent shares or, or I'm sorry, rent or, or revenue shares or operating profit shares. Uh, they participate uh, alongside the other investors within the investment. And we take care of all the back end. Uh, uh, so we're sort of an easy one-stop shop for investors and for farmers both. Okay, so the investor is going to get units in the LLC the LLC is going to go ahead and own the farmland or the tract. Is there debt associated with this or are you doing 100% equity? It is usually 100% equity. On, on occasion, there will be some debt. It, it's not like a, a ton of debt, right? Um, but it, it's it, on, on maybe a third of what we do, maybe even a quarter of what we do, there'll be some debt. And, and if there is, it's very loudly disclaimed on the website and explained. And, and typically that debt's going to be non-recourse to the to the investor. Uh, okay. And now as far as a return, you know, we know that with land pricing lately, especially with, let's say, the reduction in some crop prices right now, 
the return is probably, I mean, what are some of the rate ranges of returns that an investor might be looking at right now? If we look over the long term of farmland returns over the last 20, 30 years, they tend to be low double digits, like 11 or 12%. And that's that's a combination of both appreciation and income, each of which can, can, can do fluctuate inside of a given year. Over longer periods of time, however, that return profile has been uh, pretty consistent. Call, call it highly consistent relative to things like commercial real estate or uh, gold or stock markets, thing, you know, other primary or mainstream asset classes, uh, albeit certainly with, with its own idiosyncrasies and, and changes in, in return profile year to year. And so the, the investor is going to get a little bit of a cash return. And again, as you mentioned, that could vary year to year, but over a five, 10, 15 year period, most of the return for the investor is likely going to be appreciation and land value. Do I have that accurate or would you say it's a little bit different than that? That That is appropriate. Uh, it's certainly historically vetted out in the world of row crops. In the world of permanent crops, it tends to be a little more income heavy and less appreciation heavy because the, you know, you think about trees, they, they depreciate over time. Uh, timberland is its own unique beast as well. But as, as a general statement, I think that is appropriate. And importantly, what, what the investors are looking for, many of which are, are farmers, by the way, and uh, like a, a huge swath are live in rural America and understand the value of farmland. What those investors tend to often look for with, with our platform is consistency, wealth preservation, you know, that, that slow compounding of capital, right? We, we are very, very vocal that this is not a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. Folks are not here, you know, this is not uh, Bitcoin or some highly speculative relative uh, asset class to what's what's out there in the world. What what we're hoping for is is really just that slow and steady compounding over long periods of time. What would be your mix of of properties that you've invested in, such as row crop, uh, permanent crop, and then timberland? I'm just curious. And again, you're not going to have the actual percentages, but I'm just as far as approximate percentage of each of those, what would it be? If I'm guessing, it's 60, 30, 10. So 60% row crops, 30% permanent, 10% uh, timber. Is there a concentration in certain parts of the country where you've done these investments or is it spread out? And again, you mentioned Australia, so I know there's some there, but is it spread out all over the country or, or is it concentrated? It, it is quite spread out. We, we really started with a focus where we as a small team in our early days knew best, which was here in the Mississippi River Delta and uh, in the in the Midwest. So so really a, a core focus on row crops. Then we expanded to permanent crops, then into Australia, then into timber. I think we're in 18 or 19 states. So that's everywhere from the Pacific Northwest uh, to obviously all throughout the Midwest and, and the South here. Uh, all the way up to we have a uh, an organic farm investment in New York. Is that vegetable related or is that uh, row, uh, row crop related? That that's correct. It's especially crops and vegetables. Yeah, yeah. It, it's surprising. You know, a lot of people view New York as being New York City, and I've been in upstate New York. I mean, there it, that is a heavy ag part of the country up in that area. It is. R rural New York is, is beautiful. I think we all tend to hear the word New York and think about 
Manhattan. I, I know I certainly do. And I, I forget that that region or up in the Finger Lakes region as an example. It's just a, it's a gorgeous part of the world. It, not, it is. Not a lot of people out there. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, as far as the income coming in, again, maybe an idea, is it mostly cash rent or is it a crop share or is it a combination of flex or or what type of rent situation are you typically seeing? We we like a flat like if, if it is rent right where where often it may not be but in the world of, of a straight rental contract uh, we prefer a, a flex contract as, as it allows us to sort of ride along up or down with the farmer and, and also help reduce the farmer's risk a little bit uh, we are concerned especially in some of the midwest states where we see landowners pushing for pretty extreme rents and, and some farmers willing to take those on, uh, you know, seeing $600 type of rents or uh, in, in places where it probably should be in the fours. Yep. Th th those types of cash rents make us a little bit concerned uh, in, in places, particularly for the farmer. Uh, and, and so we, we, we really do like that flex structure where we, we can participate in upside, but also uh, the farmer's got some, some downside protection should, should the year not pan out from a, uh, a yield or price standpoint. And and you mentioned that these land that you end up purchasing is really more brought to you by the farmers. So can you expand on, on what you mean by that? Most farmers, many farmers, maybe most, certainly the ones we work with, uh, tend to want to grow their operation. And so, you know, I'll give you a, uh, an example is Kyle in the Midwest, uh, a neighboring tract is coming up because the uh, neighbor is retiring and it's a $3 million purchase. And that, and, you know, Kyle is an incredible farmer with, with a real operation, uh, real equipment and, and purchasing power, et cetera, across his inputs. And he, he wants to grow, but you know, as, as most folks, like he probably doesn't have $3 million in his back pocket. So he comes to us and says, hey, I, I want to, uh, invest in this. I do have some money. I, I'd like to put some money in. I just don't have three million or you know a million and a half to go to the bank and lever up. Uh, so Kyle can come invest alongside us, set up a longer term uh, uh, rent contract that's favorable to him. Can can even set up back end mechanics where he's got uh, certain rights to be able to acquire the farmland himself in you know five or ten years. And and in some cases we can even make it so that that farmer has actual skin in the game. So, so they actually uh, get paid a, a financial incentive based on the appreciation of that farmland. So that's, uh, when, when I say we, we partner with farmers, I, I mean it, that we, a lot of folks here in our office come in and you know, drag mud in from, from their outside of the office activities on their boots. We, we are a farmer first business. And if we can create real wins for farmers and bring investment dollars to rural America, then we are very, very excited and we know we've got a scalable business. And I'm guessing that this is how I think your operation works and you're gonna tell me either that I'm right, wrong or somewhere in between that um, you're not gonna, you're gonna have to purchase that property first. I mean, your fund or acre trader will purchase that property, you know, create the LLC, get the structure all set up, purchase the property, and then you end up getting the investors to buy into the LLC. 
Uh, do is that how it works, or or how does it work? It's usually a scenario where we we actually will establish the LLC and put together a purchase contract. Then we go fill the money up with LLC from the investors and then close on the contract. Okay. 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 So typically these are not going to be public auction type transactions. They're going to be private party where you have entered into the agreement with the seller beforehand. Is that how it works then? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Because I was going to say, if it's a public auction, you really don't have time to get the investors to get their money in and time to get the thing closed. Cause usually typically those have to close within about 30 days of the auction. That, that's right. Or, or, or in some cases even sooner. So we've, we've um, we, we monitor auctions every single day, right? So we've, uh, we'll, we'll talk about our tool at acres.com here in a bit and and uh, you know the, the information we provide to the market through that tool. So we, we monitor the auction market very, very closely to understand prices and what's out there. Uh, so we have participated in, in very few auctions uh, in our life yet uh, to date. Okay. So you mentioned acres.com, acretrader.com. Let's let's go through right now what 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 do you offer to the to the investor and the farmer out there in the arena right now? So we've we've spoken through Acre Trader a good bit. Uh, to I'll, I'll quickly mention, we as a as a business had real trouble finding information on farmland and farmland values. So we were logging into six different software systems plus GIS and county courthouses and our own databases we had built. So we began building a tool several years ago really for ourselves uh, to have one tool to, to understand land and, and value land with confidence. That we ultimately decided towards the end of last year to launch that publicly and just to share everything with the world in hopes of making a, a more functioning market around land. So that tool today lives at acres.com and you can go there and create a free account, get access to tons of unique uh, data, data layers customized land that you you know keep keep notes things like that so it's really just a a great all-around tool uh, for geospatial analysis for for mapping right but but also for for data and data management uh, just to keep uh, keep track of land and, and land markets around you and and you know there are certain states out there i'm thinking maybe north dakota maybe nebraska iowa potentially that have um, they prevent corporate owners from owning land? It, does that restrict your ability to go into those states because you're a broker dealer, the way it's set up, and so on? Or since this is just a private party LLC ownership, that's still okay? I'm sort of curious on that. Yeah, it's it is a unique and case by case, state by state. So we, we've um, we, we've got a great. Uh, uh, legal team here, the general counsel and several attorneys that work with her. And we've we've worked closely with a lot of states to, to understand not just the letter of the law, but but the, the spirit as well to, to make sure that we are well, well within bounds in any type of investment or, or state we're working with. So have you purposely skipped some states then because of, uh, again, maybe more the spirit of the law? I mean, you legally could have done something, but you said, well, that's just not right. We're just not going to go into that state. Well, yeah, so there are, well, I'll give you an example with, with Iowa, right? They've, they've uh, 
ha have some tight restrictions, albeit they are very um, direct about those, about, and open about those restrictions, right? So they, and, and the nature of it really is born out of wanting to be careful around speculation, uh, which happens anyway in that market pretty intensely. Uh, yeah. Locally, right? Like, like exclude every, everybody outside. And then also a, a, a real and, and valid concern around foreign ownership, in particular with, with adversaries of, of the U.S. Uh, so in that in that case or in that state, uh, you you've got an investment vehicle that limits the number of investors. It does not allow entities to invest at all. So it's all individual investors coming in, and you have to limit the number of them. And uh, I, I, if I recall correctly, they can only invest one time in that state through that type of structure. So there there are real limitations, but but again we uh, you know, have to have to as as a business, we deal with farmland and capital, pe people's money. These are things people tend to be uh, appropriately very, very sensitive about. And so it is uh, is in our best interest to make sure we respect and understand all rules and regulations and what's out there in the world. Then I'm curious a uh, couple things. We'll start with. Why did you end up going to, into uh, Timberland? Primarily because we, we had lots of uh, investment interest in it. We had followed the asset class for a long time. We uh, were able to meet uh, an incredible uh, person in, uh, named Mark Foley, who helps manage that, that vertical for us today. And, and you know, he had underwritten and or managed a billion or billions of land, you know, something incredible. And he was really intrigued by our platform and wanted to build this out. So uh, we stepped very slowly and cautiously into that world. And we're, we're really excited to be in investing in, in Timber. And do you see, and this may be beyond you and might be more of a Mark question. May, matter of fact, maybe I should have Mark on a podcast. Um, as far as the carbon, carbon credits, carbon options in that Timberland, is that part of the return? That you're seeing in timberland it's it's not part of the return that we model as i understand it it's an intriguing market and one that we monitor closely across our business it is still immature right and, and there's tons of activity and uh, look like anything that can produce additional income for a farmer or a farming family or, or a land-owning family uh, we are big big fans of and, and so we're we're excited about carbon markets and excited to see them develop. But to date, we have participated very little there, uh, just given the lack of maturity. And, and to, to be clear, we, we've tried and we, we've worked there. We just haven't seen uh, enough exciting outcome yet as, as investors uh, or, or farmers. Okay. And then why did you expand into Australia? Great partners there and a... Uh, fascinating market, right? So it's a it's a mature land market, great climate, soils. Uh, the water there is, is very well regulated via the government. And so you can purchase water futures and, uh, you know, there's just a, a, a very well understood market to participate in. So it's also very institutionalized. So there's lots of, uh, call it, you know, professional or highly professional uh, land management there. So it's a, it's a very unique market, but one that we're uh, in, intrigued by to say the least. So if I'm, if I'm a farmer investor in, and I'm interested in participating in one of these deals that you have, 
I, I buy the units in the LLC, and then I got to wait for that K-1 to show up, and I'm trying to file my tax return by March 1st, and I'm waiting for this K-1. Is When do you typically get those K-1s out to the investors? We uh, get them out as early as we possibly can. I want to make sure I don't say the wrong thing. I know in years past, we've gotten them all out by March. Uh, I, I don't know if that was still the case this year, but I, I believe they were all out well before uh, tax filings were, were due. Okay. So we, okay. we've got a team here who focuses intensely on that uh, tax filing distribution so that so that people are not waiting on us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to segue and just mention to the farmers listening on here. I highly suggest that you no longer try to file your return by March 1. It is much better to simply pay your one little, not little, it could be large, but pay your one estimated tax payment on January 15th and then file your return by April 15th, especially if you have investments such as in Acre Trader or you have stock and bond investments. A lot of those, and I'm excluding Acre Trader here, just a lot of those stock and bond investments, you do not get your 1099 until the end of February. So uh, trying to file your return by March 1 is not the smart thing to do anymore. So sorry, Carter, I went out on a little tangent there, but uh, just, <laughs> I've, I've just, always understood that the longer you wait to pay the government, the better. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, and these days with interest rates much higher, the interest rate for, uh, for underpayment by the IRS is now 7%. You know, there are many cases where paying a very small payment on January 15th and then paying the remaining amount on April 15th economically is much better than filing and paying your tax by March 1. So uh, uh, that that's just a public service announcement to farmers out there. Um, if you look five, 10 years down the road, is there some trends that you see that you think will change how investment in ag, ag land is done? Or do you see what you're doing is gonna become more and more popular with other uh, participants out there? I, I hope so. I, I hope that what our approach to the market is more widely adopted, right? We, uh, we, we really believe it is a necessary for the farmer to be involved heavily uh, through, throughout the life cycle of an investment. And, you know, I, I think that there are probably some, some folks on, on Wall Street that may not see that. And, and it, it, even if they're, they have good intentions, it may just be, hey, I'm gonna go buy land and, you know, see if I can go find a farmer to, to work that land for me. And I, that, that type of mentality, I, I don't believe is a, a winning formula one for the investor, but but two for for rural America, a place that we as a business and as a people care deeply about. So I I, I really do hope, and I expect, fr frankly, that uh, that as the uh, you know generational handoffs take place, uh, that more and more people will look to the farmer to to lead, right, and, and look to the farmer as as a a partner rather than a a tenant. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good a good theme there. And and it, it'll be interesting over the next five, 10, 15 years, you know, the pace of technology, uh, you know, AI, does that, there's just so many things that uh, are happening that uh, 
we just don't know where they're going to go. The, the world is changing at an ever faster pace. And, uh, you know, I think as, as long as we all remember to uh, prioritize partnerships and, and humans above technology, yep. uh, the, the outcomes can be very, very positive. Yeah, my, my, my dad was born in 1912. If he's still alive, he'd be, what, 111 years, well, 110 years old. And uh, just the amount of change that would have happened during his lifetime is just immense, or my kids' lifetime. So uh, it, it'll definitely be, uh, it may, as the old uh, proverb says, may you live in interesting times, and I think we are. I agree. My, my, uh, my dad is 89 years old and still works every day, you know, farming in, in his blood and he's out on the farm, you know, most, most days of the week. And uh, I think he's more technologically savvy than I am. That's uh, <laughs> frankly where, where the idea of Acre Trader came from. I, I alluded to this earlier. He and I were arguing. I was, he was, this is in like 2017. He's telling me he was going to buy some Bitcoin and I was calling him an idiot because it was like $600. <laughs> so like, whoops, sorry, dad, uh, terrible investment advice from me. But, uh, but it is, it is, uh, fun for, for, for him to see the amount of evolution going on and for us to all extrapolate out just a, a decade what will be yeah. happening on the farm yeah. is incredible. Speaking of Bitcoin, my number two son, he told me a few years back that he had bought, I think, 50 Bitcoins back in like 2011 or 12. And, and he said that if you'd kept it, it was like worth like nine million or $10 million. But he he sold it after he had a, like a hundred percent return. He says the worst investment he ever did. So in a way, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but we have all those stories. I have other stories too. But uh, I think we'll go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll follow up with some other questions I have for you. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years. 10 years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, RoboAgar Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgar Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Nefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with uh, Carter Malloy from Acre Trader and Acres.com. Matter of fact, Carter, I just plugged in while we were talking Acres.com on, on the computer here, and I'm going to uh, uh, definitely sign up because I got, like I say, I got land in Missouri, I got land in Iowa, I got Missouri, in, I mean, land in Washington. I want to see how it compares and all that good stuff. But uh, right. I, you know, I was going to add, and I think I already know the answer. I think you've already hinted at this, but uh, who was your mentor? My dad. Uh, it, so. Hey, I guessed right. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty easy. I speak to him most days of the week and 
uh, he he sets me straight on most days of the week. <laughs> you know that that never changes. Uh, uh, you know, I remember when I was uh, operating a combine one time, and you know, my dad was driving truck, and I was operating the combine, and you know, we're out in Washington State on steep hills, and I'm dry or I'm cutting a swath on sort of a steep hill, and that year we had a fair amount of rain, and we had a lot of cheatgrass, and I'm sliding down the hill about 10, 15, 20 feet. Not a lot, but it definitely wakes you up. And I come over and I remember telling my dad when I was dumping the grain, I go, Dad, hey, I'm sliding down the hill a little bit. And my dad goes, ah, here, I'll get on the combine. I'm going to show this dumb son of mine how to operate a combine. So he he gets on the combine. I'm standing next to him and we're coming up to the area. And I'm telling my dad, hey, this is where it's pretty slick. And I can mentally see the steam coming out of his ears that, you know, this 15-year-old whippersnapper doesn't know what he's talking about. Suddenly, we hit the slick stop spot, and we don't go 10 or 15 feet. We The combine actually turns around. It's flying down the hill. The header's going up and down. It's bucking up and down. I still vividly remember opening the cab door. I'm going to jump off the combine. And then I look up and I saw we were going to come to the disc area. I knew we were going to stop. And sure enough, we stopped the combine. My dad doesn't say anything. Of course, I'm not saying anything at all. And then he goes over. We finish the cut. He goes over and dumps the grain. And I'm figuring, hey, I'm going to get chewed out now. And my dad turns around, looks at me and says, okay, son, you know what you're doing? He got off the combine and and, he, and everything was hunky-dory. So, but uh, but uh, I, I understand that. So, well, you... I. I don't know if you have any kids, you got this job, but do you have time for any hobbies? I I do. I, I do have some uh, wonderful kids at home. So they are my hobby number one after my uh, obsession or, or addiction, which is work. Yeah. Uh, be, beyond that, I, I read pretty intensely. So I, I uh, try to do a couple books a month and then I, I play music. So I play music most days of the week that uh, a couple of different instruments, but I really, really have always enjoyed music. On reading books, because that's one of my hobbies, uh, I'm typically, I think since fourth grade, I've read over 100 books a year, every year. Um, do you read for pleasure? Do you read for business? What 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 type of genre do you like to do? I am, uh, uh, I, I, I switch back and forth, right? So I, I really enjoy nonfiction. I, I love uh, learning, especially about management science and building businesses, uh, you know, biographies, et cetera. And so I, I enjoy that world quite a bit. I find sometimes that authors tend to want to flex their research. And so what should be a 150 page book is 300 pages. Yep, and, and yep. that can be a little uh, tiring, you know, going through some of that rote uh, repetition, rep repetitive type of stuff they put in there. Uh, so I, I keep myself in the habit of reading by, uh, by, interjecting that that world of study uh, with with some just ridiculous fiction uh, to keep me addicted to picking up a book every night and making sure that <laughs> I don't pick up the remote which is the bigger the bigger rule for me exactly yeah I'm uh, I, I like biographies I like business but uh, my pleasure is I read thrillers you know mysteries thrillers that type of stuff oh, yeah. child Jonathan Kellerman stuff like that uh, that's uh, sort of my favorite to, if I want to be entertained. Yeah, totally. And it just keeps you in the habit again, right? Like the yeah. forming habits is what's most important and also avoiding the habit of 
uh, ever turning on the television for any reason. Yeah, I, I find most of my television viewing now is just, it's in the background. Yeah, I might have a sporting event on or, or CNBC's on, but I'm not even really watching it. It just happens to be on. And, and these days at night, it's very rare that my wife can actually turn on the TV. It's more, okay, we'll have the news on in the morning and that's about it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, what keeps you up at night? Uh, those books. <laughs> That's uh, uh, I, I tend to I tend to really uh, work on not worrying, uh, as I, I don't believe worrying buys us much in this world. So I said, just try to focus my attention uh, and and you know that headspace on productivity and, and trying to move the business forward. So, you know, I, I look. I the thing that the things that do worry me are, are making sure that I'm appropriately supporting the people around me, both both my family and the, the coworkers I work with. So that, that's probably the, the thing that digs at me uh, the most. Yeah, no, I think that's true for most of us. And then, and then finally, what's your definition of success in farming? I, I think that one's pretty straightforward. Seeing other people win, uh, you know, impact is, is a, a probably like ridiculous word, <laughs> but, when you boil down what would impact means for, for me in, in the world of business, it's seeing other people succeed. And if you can consistently create success for others, then the business itself should by default uh, continue to grow and scale. So that, that's really what we put our focus on is trying to find great outcomes for the farmers we work with, for the investors we work with, for the folks that work here at, at AcreTrader and at acres.com is fi finding uh, finding wins and finding reasons to celebrate and, and keep coming back and pushing harder. Well, good. Um, those are the questions I had. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Carter, before we sign off? This has been a, a great interview today. I've enjoyed quite a bit discussing all this. And luckily, you didn't quiz me on accounting. Uh, so that <laughs> is a, a big win for me. So I'll, I'll call this one a win. Hey, I'm a tax person, so I, I try to stay away from accounting myself. I, I, yeah, that's probably not totally accurate. But uh, again, Carter, thanks a lot for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with us. And uh, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Neefer, your host, signing off. <laughs>